Matilda by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley Chapter 8 I was carried to the next town. Fever succeeded to convulsions and faintings, and for some weeks my unhappy spirit hovered on the very verge of death. But life was yet strong within me. I recovered, nor did it a little aid my returning health that my recollections were at first vague, and that I was too weak to feel any violent emotion. I often said to myself, My father is dead. He loved me with a guilty passion, and stung by remorse and despair, he killed himself. Why is it that I feel no horror? Are these circumstances not dreadful? Is it not enough that I shall never more meet the eyes of my beloved father, never more hear his voice, no caress, no look, all cold and stiff and dead? Alas, I am quite callous. The night I was out in was fearful, and the cold rain that fell about my heart has acted like the waters of the cavern of Antiparos, and has changed it to stone. I do not weep or sigh, but I must reason with myself, and force myself to feel sorrow and despair. This is not resignation that I feel, for I am dead to all regret. I communed in this manner with myself, but I was silent to all around me. I hardly replied to the slightest question, and was uneasy when I saw a human creature near me. I was surrounded by my female relations, but they were, all of them, nearly strangers to me. I did not listen to their consolations, and so little did they work their designed effect, that they seemed to me to be spoken in an unknown tongue. I found if sorrow was dead within me, so was love and desire of sympathy. Yet sorrow only slept, to revive more fierce, but love never woke again. Its ghost, ever hovering over my father's grave, alone survived. Since his death, all the world was to me a blank, except where woe had stamped its burning words, telling me to smile no more. The living were not fit companions for me. And I was ever meditating by what means I might shake them all off, and never be heard of again. My convalescence rapidly advanced. Yet this was the thought that haunted me, and I was for ever forming plans how I might, hereafter, contrive to escape the tortures that were prepared for me when I should mix in society, and to find that solitude which alone could suit one whom an untold grief separated from her fellow-creatures. Who can be more solitary, even in a crowd, than one whose history and the never-ending feelings and remembrances arising from it, is known to no living soul. There was too deep a horror in my tale for confidence. I was on earth the sole depository of my own secret. I might tell it to the winds, and to the desert heaths, but I must never, among my fellow-creatures, either by word or look, give allowance to the smallest conjecture of the dread reality. I must shrink before the eye of man, lest he should read my father's guilt in my glazed eyes. I must be silent, lest my faltering voice should betray unimagined horrors. Over the deep grave of my secret I must heap an impenetrable heap of false smiles and words, cunning frauds, treacherous laughter, 
and a mixture of all light deceits would form a mist to blind others, and be as the poisonous simoon to me. I, the offspring of love, the child of the woods, the nursling of nature's bright self, was to submit to this? I dared not. How must I escape? I was rich and young, and had a guardian appointed for me, and all about me would act as if I were one of their great society, while I must keep the secret that I really was cut off from them for ever. If I fled, I should be pursued. In life there was no escape for me. Why, then, I must die? I shuddered. I dared not die, even though the cold grave held all I loved. Although I might say with Job, Where now is my hope? For my hope who shall see it? They shall go down together to the bars of the pit, when our rest together is in the dust. Yes, my hope was corruption and dust, and all to which death brings us. Or after life. No, no, I will not persuade myself to die. I may not, dare not. And then I wept. Yes, warm tears once more struggled into my eyes, soothing yet bitter. And after I had wept much, and called with unavailing anguish, with outstretched arms, for my cruel father, after my weak frame was exhausted by all variety of plaint, I sank once more into reverie, and once more reflected on how I might find that which I most desired, dear to me if aught were dear, a death-like solitude. I dared not die, but I might feign death, and thus escape from my comforters. They will believe me united to my father, and so indeed I shall be for alone, when no voice can disturb my dream, and no cold eye meet mine to check its fire, then I may commune with his spirit, on a lone heath, at noon or at midnight, still I should be near him. His last injunction to me was that I should be happy. Perhaps he did not mean the shadowy happiness that I promised myself yet it was that alone which I could taste. He did not conceive that ever again I could make one of the smiling hunters that go coursing after bubbles that break to nothing when caught, and then after a new one with brighter colours. My hope also had proved a bubble, but it had been so lovely, so adorned, that I saw none that could attract me after it. Besides, I was wearied with the pursuit, nearly dead with weariness. I would feign to die. My contented heirs would seize upon my wealth, and I should purchase freedom. But then my plan must be laid with art. I would not be left destitute. I must secure some money. Alas! to what loathsome shifts must I be driven! Yet a whole life of falsehood was otherwise my portion, and when remorse at being the contriver of any cheat made me shrink from my design, I was irresistibly led back and confirmed in it by the visit of some aunt or cousin, who would tell me that death was the end of all men, and then say that my father had surely lost his wits ever since my mother's death, that he was mad, and that I was fortunate, for in one of his fits he might have killed me, 
instead of destroying his own crazed being. And all this, to be sure, was delicately put, not in broad words, for my feelings might be hurt, but whispered so and so, in dark hint, soft and low, with downcast eyes, and sympathising smiles or whimpers. And I listened with quiet countenance, while every nerve trembled. I, that dared not utter I or nay to all this blasphemy. Oh, this was a delicious life, quite void of guile. I, with my dove's look, and fox's heart. For indeed I felt only the degradation of falsehood, and not any sacred sentiment of conscious innocence that might redeem it. I, who had before clothed myself in the bright garb of sincerity, must now borrow one of diverse colours. It might sit awkwardly at first, but use would enable me to place it in elegant folds, to lie with grace. Aye, I might dye my soul with falsehood, until I had quite hid its native colour. O oh, beloved father, accept the pure heart of your unhappy daughter. Permit me to join you unspotted as I was, or you will not recognise my altered semblance. As grief might change Constance, so would deceit change me, until in heaven you would say, This is not my child. My father, to be happy both now and when again we meet, I must fly from all this life which is mockery to one like me. In solitude only shall I be myself. In solitude I shall be thine. Alas! I even now look back with disgust at my artifices and contrivances, by which, after many painful struggles, I effected my retreat. I might enter into a long detail of the means I used, first to secure myself a slight maintenance for the remainder of my life, and afterwards to ensure the conviction of my death. I might, but I will not. I even now blush at the falsehoods I uttered. My heart sickens. I will leave this complication of what I hope I may in a manner call innocent deceit to be imagined by the reader. The remembrance haunts me like a crime. I know that if I were to endeavour to relate it, my tale would at length remain unfinished. I was led to London, and had to endure for some weeks cold looks, cold words, and colder consolations. But I escaped. They tried to bind me with fetters that they thought silken, yet which weighed on me like iron, though I broke them more easily than a girth formed of a single straw, and fled to freedom. The few weeks that I spent in London were the most miserable of my life. A great city is a frightful habitation to one sorrowing. The sunset and the gentle moon, the blessed motion of the leaves and the murmuring of waters are all sweet physicians to a distempered mind. The soul is expanded and drinks in quiet, a lulling medicine. To me it was as the sight of the lovely water-snakes to the bewitched mariner. In loving and blessing nature, I, unawares, called down a blessing on my own soul. But in a city all is closed shut like a prison, a wiry prison, from which you can peep at the sky only. I cannot describe to you what were the frantic nature of my sensations while I resided there. 
I was often on the verge of madness. Nay, when I look back on many of my wild thoughts, thoughts with which actions sometimes endeavoured to keep pace, when I tossed my hands high, calling down the cope of heaven to fall on me and bury me, when I tore my hair, and throwing it to the winds, cried, Ye are free, go seek my father! And then, like the unfortunate Constance, catching at them again, and tying them up, that naught might find him if I might not. How on my knees I have fancied myself close to my father's grave, and struck the ground in anger that it should cover him from me. Oft, when I have listened with gasping attention for the sound of the ocean, mingled with my father's groans, and then wept until my strength was gone, and I was calm and faint. When I have recollected all this, I have asked myself if this were not madness. While in London, these, and many other dreadful thoughts too harrowing for words, were my portion. I lost all this suffering when I was free, when I saw the wild heath around me, and the evening star in the west, then I could weep, gently weep, and be at peace. Do not mistake me, I never was really mad. I was always conscious of my state, when my wild thoughts seemed to drive me to insanity, and never betrayed them to aught but silence and solitude. The people around me saw nothing of all this. They only saw a poor girl, broken in spirit, who spoke in a low and gentle voice, and from underneath whose downcast lids tears would sometimes steal, which she strove to hide. One who loved to be alone, and shrunk from observation, who never smiled. Oh, no, I never smiled. And that was all. Well, I escaped. I left my guardian's house, and I was never heard of again. It was believed, from the letters that I left, and other circumstances that I planned, that I had destroyed myself. I was sought after, therefore, with less care than would otherwise have been the case, and soon all trace and memory of me was lost. I left London in a small vessel, bound for a port in the north of England. And now, Having succeeded in my attempt, and being quite alone, peace returned to me. The sea was calm, and the vessel moved gently onwards. I sat upon deck, under the open canopy of heaven, and methought I was an altered creature. Not the wild, raving, and most miserable Matilda, but a youthful hermitess, dedicated to seclusion and whose bosom she must strive to keep free from all tumult and unholy despair. The fanciful nun-like dress that I had adopted, the knowledge that my very existence was a secret known only to myself, the solitude to which I was for ever hereafter destined, nursed gentle thoughts in my wounded heart. The breeze that played in my hair revived me, and I watched with quiet eyes, the sunbeams that glittered on the waves, and the birds that coursed each other over the waters, just brushing them with their plumes. I slept, too, undisturbed by dreams, and awoke refreshed again to enjoy my tranquil freedom. 
In four days we arrived at the harbour to which we were bound. I would not remain on the sea-coast, but proceeded immediately inland. I had already planned the situation where I would live. It should be a solitary house on a wide plain near no other habitation, where I could behold the whole horizon, and wander far without molestation from the sight of my fellow-creatures. I was not misanthropic, but I felt that the gentle current of my feelings depended upon my being alone. I fixed myself on a wide solitude. On a dreary heath, bestrewn with stones, among which short grass grew, and here and there a few rushes beside a little pool. Not far from my cottage was a small cluster of pines, the only trees to be seen for many miles. I had a path cut through the firs from my door to this little wood, from whose topmost branches the birds saluted the rising sun, and woke me to my daily meditation. My view was bounded only by the horizon, except on one side, where a distant wood made a black spot on the heath, but everywhere else stretched out its faint hues as far as the eye could reach, wide and very desolate. Here I could mark the network of the clouds, as they wove themselves into thick masses. I could watch the slow rise of the heavy thunder-clouds, and could see the rack as it was driven across the heavens, or under the pine-trees I could enjoy the stillness of the Asia sky. My life was very peaceful. I had one female servant, who spent the greater part of the day at a village two miles off. My amusements were simple and very innocent. I fed the birds who built on the pines, or among the ivy that covered the wall of my little garden, and they soon knew me. The bolder ones pecked the crumbs from my hands, and perched on my fingers to sing their thankfulness. When I had lived here some time, other animals visited me, and a fox came every day for a portion of food appropriated for him, and would suffer me to pat his head. I had besides many books, and a harp, with which, when despairing, I could soothe my spirits, and raise myself to sympathy and love. Love! What had I to love? Oh, many things! There was the moonshine and the bright stars, the breezes and the refreshing rains, there was the whole earth and the sky that covers it, all lovely forms that visited my imagination all memories of heroism and virtue. Yet this was very unlike my early life, although, as then, I was confined to nature and books. Then I bounded across the fields. My spirit often seemed to ride upon the winds, and to mingle in joyful sympathy with the ambient air. Then, if I wandered slowly, I cheered myself with a sweet song, or sweeter daydreams, I felt a holy rapture spring from all I saw. I drank in joy with life. My steps were light. My eyes, clear from the love that animated them, sought the heavens, and with my long hair loosened to the winds, I gave my body and my mind to sympathy and delight. But now my walk was slow. My eyes were seldom raised, and often filled with tears. No song no smiles, no careless motion that might bespeak a mind intent on what surrounded it. 
I was gathered up into myself, a selfish, solitary creature, ever pondering on my regrets and faded hopes. Mine was an idle, useless life. It was so. But say not to the lily laid prostrate by the storm, arise and bloom as before. My heart was bleeding from its death's wound. I could live no otherwise. Often, amid apparent calm, I was visited by despair and melancholy, gloom that naught could dissipate or overcome, a hatred of life, a carelessness of beauty. All these would by fits hold me nearly annihilated by their powers. Never for one moment, when most placid, did I cease to pray for death. I could be found in no state of mind which I would not willingly have exchanged for nothingness. And morning and evening, my tearful eyes raised to heaven, my hands clasped tight in the energy of prayer, I have repeated with the poet, Before I see another day, oh, let this body die away. Let me not be reproached, then, with inutility. I believed that by suicide I should violate a divine law of nature, and I thought that I sufficiently fulfilled my part in submitting to the hard task of enduring the crawling hours and minutes, in bearing the load of time that weighed miserably upon me, and that, in abstaining from what I, in my calm moments, considered a crime, I deserved the reward of virtue. There were periods, dreadful ones, during which I despaired, and doubted the existence of all duty, and the reality of crime. But I shudder, and turn from the remembrance. End of chapter 8